The sixth line of logical evidence showing us that the Bible really did come from God is that manuscripts say so. But don't take my word for it. Let's listen to God's. Colossians 4, 7-16 Tychius will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brother at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter is read to you, see that it is also read in the church of Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. So how do we know that the Bible really did come from God? Well, what did we just see? Apparently, the sixth line of evidence is that manuscripts or copies of the letters of the Bible say so. And this is apparently what the skeptics seem to miss. What did we just see again? Paul said to the Colossians that when they were done reading that letter that they got from Paul, that they should what? They should pass that letter on to the church of Laodicea and then get busy reading that one that he wrote to them, right? And so here's the point. This massive amount of letters, which eventually became the Bible, 27 in the New Testament and 39 in the Old, is a huge proof that the Bible really did come from God. And this is important to know because the skeptics will usually come back and say something like this. Well, uh, even if the Bible was transmitted reliably by the authors of the Bible, we still can't be sure of the accuracy since we don't have the original copies. But actually, nothing could be further from the truth. And the reason why is because more manuscript copies of the document you have, the more you can cross-reference the copies to ensure that what you have is accurate to the original. In fact, so much so we can do this that Sir Frederick Kenyon stated this, quote, The last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us as they were written has now been removed. And this truth really hits home, especially when you compare the manuscript copies of the Bible to other works of antiquity whose validity, mind you, is never questioned. Let's first look at the New Testament. And, and, and as you'll see, the results are quite embarrassing for the skeptic. Let's look at some other authors when they wrote the earliest copy known, the time span, and the number of copies known to exist. For instance, Homer, written in 900 B.C., the earliest copy we have is 400 B.C., which is 500 years removed from the original, and we have 643 in existence. Then you have the writings of Pliny, written in A.D. 61 to 113, the earliest copy that we have is 850 A.D., which is 750 years removed from the original, and we only have seven copies in existence. Then there's Herodotus, written 480 to 425 B.C. The earliest copy is 900 A.D., which is 1,300 years removed 
from the original, and we only have eight in existence. Then there's Catalyst, written 54 BC. The earliest copy we have is 1550 AD, which is 1600 years removed from the original, and we only have three in existence. Then Euripides, written 480 to 406 BC, the earliest copy is 1180, which is 1500 years removed from the original, and we only have nine. Aristophanes, uh, 450 to 385 BC, it was written. The earliest copy we have is from 980, 1200 years removed from the original, and we only have 10 in existence. Then we have Aristotle, written from 384 to 322 BC. The earliest copies we have is from 1100 AD, which is 1400 years removed from the original, and we only have 49. Then there's Plato written around 427 to 347 B.C. The earliest copies we have is from 900 A.D., which is 1,200 years removed from the original, and we only have seven in existence. Yet, we have the New Testament written between 40 to 100 A.D. We got portions from 125 A.D., which is only 25 years from the original, and we've got 24,000 plus copies in existence. Now, I don't know about you, but I sure find it quite odd that nobody questions the authenticity of Plato's writings when we only have seven copies, which are 1,200 years removed from the original. Yet we have portions of the New Testament within 25 years of the original with tens of thousands of copies, and people still scoff at the Christian who declares that the Bible is accurate and reliable. In fact, we've even recently discovered even more New Testament books that are even closer than that, near the same place where they found uh, them in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I, I wonder why they're not telling us about this. One of the most exciting finds involves Cave 7. In Cave 7, we have different types of manuscripts. They're written on papyrus rather than the parchment, the sheepskin. And it is written in Greek, not the Hebrew or Paleo-Hebrew. Nineteen small fragments of papyrus were found. Seventeen of the nineteen fragments were unread. The reason was they had to find them in the Old Testament, uh, and they weren't Old Testament. They were New Testament fragments. One of the most obvious is from Mark, and this particular fragment mentions uh, Gennesaret, which is a peculiar word for the Sea of Galilee used only in the first century. And so this helps date it together with the style of the letters. And this is a quotation from Mark 6, 52 and 53 that mentions Gennesaret. Well, with computers you can adjust the margins, but when you adjust it, bingo. <laughs> it fits up and down and sideways with the word Gennesaret, that unique first, testament, uh, first century word right in the middle. This is Mark 6, 52 through 53. And as they continued to analyze it, they found several other passages from Mark and Acts and Romans and 1 Timothy and 2 Peter and James verified. And the real significance is this is necessarily before 68 A.D. when the Romans came in and destroyed all of this. Now put all this together and here's what you get. If you take the 68 A.D. date, there for the, the New Testament manuscripts, this means we now have portions of the Gospel of Mark within 13 years of the actual time of writing. And it means we have portions of the book of Romans within 11 years, portions of James within 8 years, Acts within 5 years, 
1 Timothy within five years, and listen, portions of 2 Peter the exact same year it was estimated to have been written. And so I'll say it again. Nobody questions the authenticity of Plato's writings when we only have seven copies of his that are 1,200 years removed from the original and Aristotle that's 1,400 years removed from the original. And yet, we now have portions of the New Testament within the actual year of its actual writing and people still scoff at the Christian who declares that the Bible is accurate and reliable. This is why one researcher stated this, quote, No book from the ancient world comes to us with more abundant evidence for its integrity than does the New Testament. The authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. In other words, it's done. But that's just the New Testament. How about the Old Testament? How does it hold up? Is it accurate? Is it reliable? Of course it is. How do we know? Well, this was the amazing discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You see, prior to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the earliest copy we had of the Old Testament was from around 900 A.D. But the Dead Sea Scrolls reduced this gap by about a thousand years to around 125 B.C. And since the Dead Sea Scrolls were 1,000 years older than what we previously had, the skeptics, man, they couldn't wait to expose all the, all the supposed errors in the Old Testament. So was there? No, of course not. In fact, the only variances found were minor things, such as punctuation or differences in spelling. And that's because the Qumran community wrote in a different dialect, which changes nothing. Let me show you what I mean. We do it today. Some people spell theater, okay, uh, T-H-E-A-T-E-R, like, like that, but others spell it with uh, letters like this, T-H-E-A-T-R-E. Now, does that change anything? No. Or some people today spell the word Savior, S-A-V-I-O-R, okay, but others spell it S-A-V-I-O-U-R. Now, does that make a major doctrinal difference? No. And so it is with the Dead Sea Scrolls. These are dialectic differences. They're all minor stuff, okay, like those examples, which means there's no doctrinal variances from what we have today. In fact, they also found an early book of the Old Testament with the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it too was written within the lifetime of the original. Check this out. Well, all of these years of copying have to produce changes. Not so. When we understand the way they did it, the way they counted the letters, and then when we compare what was a thousand years earlier from the oldest, it's perfect. When we look at the, the youngest Old Testament book, scholars will differ, but conservatively, the one that was written latest is about 325 before Christ, B.C., the oldest Dead Sea Scroll was written 300 years before Christ. We've got about 25 years separating the original. Now, Wikipedia, as I suggested, said that oldest Dead Sea Scroll was 325. Well, certainly less than a generation removed from the original. We have copies today. We have dependable text, and it's not reasonable to think otherwise. In other words, it's illogical to doubt that the Bible really came from God. And this is why Sir Frederick Kenyon states this, 
Quote, the Christian can take the whole Bible in his hand and say without fear or hesitation that he holds in it the true word of God handed down without essential loss from generation throughout the centuries. And this is why, again, you can't have it both ways. You can't accept some books of antiquity that have little or no manuscript data and then turn around and deny the authenticity of the Bible. Why? Because the volumes of manuscript data, the early manuscript data, clearly present the Bible as the genuine Word of God. And again, anything short of this is called hypocrisy. The seventh line of logical evidence showing us that the Bible really did come from God is that archaeology says so. Let's take a look at just one classic historical passage in the Bible. Exodus 12, 37-38, 40-41 The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. Now the length of time the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years, At the end of 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. And so how do we know that the Bible really did come from God? Well, apparently, the seventh line of evidence is that archaeology says so. What did we just see? The Israelites went on a literal exodus to the literal promised land that God was literally giving to them, right? And the reason why this is important is because it records for us an actual historical event that's recorded for us in the Bible. And yet the skeptics would doubt this and say something like this. Well, uh, the Bible couldn't have come from God because God can't lie. And and since we find historical inaccuracies in the Bible, it couldn't have come from God. So the question is, is this true? Are there historical inaccuracies in the Bible? (laughs) No. In fact, you'll be happy to know that it's been the privileged duty of the archaeologist to silence the mouth of the skeptic. Let's take a look at just a few of the many examples of Old and New Testament history. The flood. Many skeptics not only disbelieve the historical account of Noah's flood, but they even go so far as to say, well, if there really was a global flood, then surely there'd be some historical evidence of it outside the Bible. Well, guess what? There is. (laughs) Tons of it. There are about 500 different uh, historical accounts of the flood from around the world. Let's just take a look at just a few of them. According to Babylonian accounts, the pre-flood people were giants who became impious and depraved, except one of them who reverenced the gods and was wise and prudent. His name was Noah, and he dwelt uh, with his three sons, Sim, Japhet, and Shem, and their wives, Tadia, Pandora, Noella, and Noegla. Noah uh, foresaw the destruction and began building an ark. Seventy-eight years later, the oceans, inland seas, and rivers burst forth from below, along with many days of violent rain. The waters overflowed all the mountains, and the human race was drowned except Noah and his family who survived on a ship. The ship came to rest at last on top of a mountain, and then we have ancient Chinese writings referring to a violent catastrophe that occurred to uh, planet Earth. One Chinese classic is called Haiking, and it tells the story of Fuhai, whom the Chinese consider to be the father of their civilization. This history records that Fuhai, his wife, three sons, and three daughters escaped the great flood. He and his family were the only ones left alive on earth, and they repopulated the world. In fact, in an ancient temple in China, there is a wall painting that shows Fuhai's boats, and the picture shows the boats in raging waters with dolphins swimming around, 
the boat and a dove with an olive branch in its beak flying back towards the boat. Then we have an Hawaiian account that says, Long after the death of the first man, the world became a wicked and terrible place to live. There was one good man left. His name was Nu'u. He made a great canoe with a house on it and filled it with animals. The water came up all over the earth and, and killed all the people. Only Nu'u and his family were saved. Then we have the discoveries of the histories in the Toltec Indians of ancient Mexico. And they have a story where the first world, they say, lasted 1,716 years and was destroyed by a great flood that covered even the highest mountains. The story tells of a man named Tapi, who was a very pious man. The creator told Tapi to build a boat and that he would live in and escape the destruction. He was told that he should take his wife, a pair of every animal that was alive, into this boat. And naturally, everyone thought he was crazy. Then the rain started and the flood came. The men and the animals tried to climb the mountains, but the mountains became flooded as well. Finally, the rain ended and Tappy decided that the water had dried up, so he let loose a dove. Following the great flood, people began to multiply and build a very high great tower to provide a safe place in case the world were destroyed again. However, everyone started to speak different languages and the people became confused and wandered to other parts of the world. In fact, other cultures also speak of this confusion of languages. Uh, we see the Sumerian tablets record for us this, quote, There was a golden age when all mankind spoke the same language. Speech was then confused by the God, the Lord of Wisdom. And the Babylonians also had a similar account which states, The gods destroyed a temple tower and scattered them abroad and made their speech strange. The black steel. Skeptics claim that Moses could not have been the author of the Pentateuch, for writing was supposedly not developed during his time. However, thanks to the discovery of the black steel, which contained in written form the laws of Hammurabi, writing was in fact commonplace during Moses' time, just like the Bible states. And speaking of writing, according to the Harvard Chinese Japanese Library, written Chinese dates back to approximately 2500 BC, which just so happens to be pretty close to the time of the end of the flood. And this is when all the languages would have had their origin. Now, what's amazing is that the Chinese language is not only pictorial language, but it hasn't changed much over the passage of time. And oddly enough, these Chinese picture words speak about Noah's flood. See for yourself. The Chinese word for boat is depicted by eight mouths, eight people inside of a container. The Chinese word for total is the uniting of eight people who join hands over the earth. The word for empty is made up of two words, cave and work. Cave is depicted as eight people under one roof. Some would say this shows that when Noah and his family left the ark, they first moved into a cave for shelter, hence eight people under one roof. Then they left the cave each day to work at emptying the ark and then share this post-flood experience with future generations, which eventually found its way into the Chinese language. The Chinese character for devil is formed from three other characters, man, garden, and private. It's like Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. The words rebellion and confusion link together the words for tongue and walking. Well, that's the Genesis 11, Tower of Babel account, verses 4 through 9. And finally, the word for garden or field is a square, and inside the square are four straight lines radiating outward into a plus sign shape. 
And according to Genesis chapter 2, a river in the Garden of Eden flowed outward in four streams and watered the entire garden. The patriarchs. Skeptics want to say that the biblical account of the patriarchs is totally unfounded. But thanks to the discovery of the Elba archives in northern Syria in the 1970s, we know now that the biblical account of the patriarchs is not only accurate and true, but even the personal names and places mentioned by the patriarchs is accurate as well. The doors in Sodom. Skeptics claim that doors were mentioned in the account of the lot of Sodom, that these were not even uh, used during that time in that culture. However, Thanks to the discoveries of archaeologists, we now know that doors were used then as a means of protection, just like the Bible states. In fact, many skeptics would also deny the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and say that there's no evidence of this event. But that's not true, because we not only have discovered the ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah near the Dead Sea, but both places were obviously destroyed by an enormous fire and debris is about three feet thick with brimstone and ash found throughout the area. Then camels. Skeptics, believe it or not, claim that the account of camels in the book of Genesis is false, for they say they were not utilized back in those times. However, thanks again to the discovery of archaeologists, we now know that the usage of camels was indeed commonplace, just like the Bible states. The Hittites. Skeptics actually claim that there was no such people as the Hittites, which are mentioned in the Old Testament. However, thanks to, again, the discovery of archaeologists, we now know that the Hittites were not just a real people, but now we have records of over 1,200 years of their civilization, just like the Bible states. Solomon's wealth. Many skeptics think that the biblical references to King Solomon's wealth are, are greatly exaggerated. But we now know that wealth and antiquity was in fact concentrated with the king, and so Solomon's prosperity was entirely feasible. King Sargon. It was once claimed by the skeptics that there was no such Assyrian king called Sargon that the Bible talks about in Isaiah. But we have not only discovered Sargon's palace in Iraq, but even the very event that Isaiah recorded for us in chapter 20 about Sargon's capture of Ashdod, it's recorded there in his palace as well. And then various battles. Skeptics also want to discount the various historical battles that are mentioned in the Bible. But again, thanks to archaeology, we now know that once again, the Bible is right. The military campaign into Israel by Pharaoh is recorded for us on the temple walls in Thebes in Egypt. The revolt of Moab against Israel is recorded on the Mesha inscription. The fall of Samaria to Sargon II is also recorded on his palace walls. The campaign of the Assyrian king Sennacherib against Judah is recorded on the Taylor prism. The siege of Lachish, also by Sennacherib, is recorded on the Lachish reliefs. The assassination of Sennacherib by his own sons is recorded in the annals of his son Esaradon. The fall of Nineveh is recorded on the tablet of Nabopolassar. The fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is recorded for us in the Babylonian Chronicles. The captivity of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, is recorded on the Babylonian ration records. The fall of Babylon to Medes and Persians is recorded on the Cyrus Cylinder. And the freeing of the captives in Babylon by Cyrus the Great is also recorded on the Cyrus Cylinder. Then we have Belshazzar. Skeptics claim that there was no such person as Belshazzar as mentioned in the book of Daniel. 
However, again, thanks to the discovery of archaeologists, we now know that he existed and ruled in Babylon, just like the Bible states. And we even found tablets that showed how Belshazzar was, in fact, Nabonidus' son who served as a co-regent in Babylon. Therefore, when he offered Daniel the third highest ruler position in the kingdom for reading the handwriting on the wall, it would have been legitimate. It was the next highest available position. Then we have just various figures. Many skeptics not only doubt uh, Belshazzar, but they even doubt many people mentioned throughout the Bible. Yet over 50 persons named in the Old Testament and 27 persons in the New Testament, including some of their likenesses, are known from other records outside the Bible. Then, of course, we have the Exodus. Many skeptics want to say that there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever for the two million Israelites making a trek through the desert like the Bible states. Yet, if that's true, why do we find chariot wheels at the bottom of the Red Sea? Let's take a look. The formations at Nueva Beach are generally smaller and scattered randomly across the seafloor. Divers familiar with the area have compared the distribution of coral here to a junkyard and the aftermath of a disaster. Since the earliest explorations at Nueva, one distinctive type of formation has often been identified on the seafloor. A slender, table-like structure, sometimes standing on end, with a coral-encrusted base, a straight shaft, and a circular top. It's a 90-degree angle, a right angle, between something that looks like an axle and the wheel. And you can see this in different varieties, and it looks very different from normal coral growth. And uh, it is like a man-made structure with a coral growth on it. While most of the possible artifacts found off the coast of Nueva are covered with coral, one significant discovery was not. There is one find at uh, the Nueva location that is of great interest, and that is the gilded wheel. It is a wooden basic structure of the wheel and is covered with gold or electrum. It's a mixture of silver and gold. And corals have not been able to grow on it. It's been very well preserved. Although it's very fragile, this seems like the wooden content has been dissolved. So I mean, you could break it if you would try to remove it. After its discovery, the fragile wheel-shaped veneer was photographed then left in place on the seafloor. Later analysis revealed that its dimensions and design resembled four-spoke chariot wheels painted on an 18th dynasty tomb wall near the biblical date of the Exodus. But that's not all. They not only find human and horse remains down there, but they also find clear evidence of the Israelites' journey after the Red Sea crossing well into the desert. Check this out. Now across, the explorers felt confident they had found strong evidence of the exodus. But with a foreboding desert stretched before them, the question remained, where did the children of Israel go from here? First, as they got out on the other side, they, they rejoiced. The Bible says they went three days into the wilderness, and they found the bitter springs of Marah. 
Um, they should have stopped at some springs along the way, some bitter water springs. Sure enough, we found these springs sitting right there by the road, and we went over and, and tasted the water, and it was so bitter you couldn't touch it to your tongue. And we opened the Bible up, and we started thumbing through the pages. We're thinking, what are we going to see next? And the Bible tells us that they came to the 70 palms and 12 springs of Elam. As we're driving along, uh, here's a whole bunch of palms, a whole bunch of springs. And this, this like really, really blew me away. And within the palm trees, we found several springs of clear water bubbling up out of the ground. Now, today they have put these concrete encasements around these springs so that the water doesn't seep out into the sand. We did find evidence of 12 springs of water bubbling up out of the ground, as the Bible says, amongst the palm trees. What would come next would be a surprise. God's command to Moses was to strike the rock at Horeb, and water would come gushing out for his thirsty nation. Could this have really happened? Would there be any evidence remaining of this? And most important, could this rock still be in existence? It must have been a very a very pronounced rock because the Bible describes it as the split rock at Horeb. You would have been able to see it from miles away. A very unique rock and there was a very unique rock indeed there right on the west side of the mountain. It goes up 40 feet from this knoll area and it has a fracture right down the middle. It goes from top to bottom about 19 inches wide. Uh, below this rock, you can see where the water has washed it smooth, that it came out in millions and maybe billions of gallons of water that poured forth over these rocks. This is not sandstone. This is dense granite rock that the water has rushed over, thus making it smooth now. This part of the world only gets a half an inch of rain every 10 years. It's impossible for this little rainfall to wash away an entire mountainside and make the granite boulders smooth. Evidence was mounting. But how would the Israelites get enough water for an entire nation of perhaps two million people? They would have needed a lake of water because they had up to two million people there possibly. We found an area that water came in and filled up this granite basin and it filled it up and it was several acres in size. Like a puzzle, the pieces were all fitting together. But what would they discover at the top of Jabal Al-Lors? If this was the holy mountain that God touched, what would they find? We saw looming up in front of us this mountain, about 8,000-foot peak, Jabal Al-Lors. And the very unique thing about the top of it is that it's black on the top. Why is the top of this mountain black and none of the other mountains around there are black on the top? And it's like such an unusual, just a visual image. And we were drawn to climb this mountain to see what these unique black rocks were. And so the climb began and we eventually got there. When we got to the top, we found these rocks that were blackened on the outside. They were shiny black. 
uh, as if some kind of an external heat source melted them. Which fits again with scripture that says that this mountain was touched by God and by fire and lightning and whatever. So it would make sense it would be blackened. And God said he descended on the mountain in flames of a furnace. And then uh, Larry said, hey, they may be volcanic. So I took a big rock and I slammed it down on top of another one. We broke off a chunk of this. And we were amazed when we looked at this rock that it was melted, crusty on the outside, but it was granite on the inside. We broke other rocks in the area. Sure enough, all of them, they were melted black on top, were granite on the inside. Then we have Luke's census. Skeptics claim that the account of, in the Gospel of Luke of the census is nowhere to be found in Roman records. However, again, thanks to the discovery of archaeologists, we now know that this kind of census taking was commonplace during that time, just like the Bible states. Pontius Pilate. Skeptics claim that there are, are no Roman records of Pontius Pilate ruling in Judea. However, again, thanks to the discovery of archaeologists, we now know that Pontius Pilate was not only a real person, but also ruling in Judea, just like the Bible states. In 1961, Italian archaeologists were excavating an ancient Roman amphitheater near Caesarea and uncovered an interesting limestone block. On the face of it is the inscription of a dedication to Tiberius Caesar that says and has on it there from Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. The Pool of Bethesda. Skeptics claim that there is no evidence for this pool that's mentioned in the Bible where Jesus healed the crippled man. However, again, thanks to the discovery of archaeologists, we now know that the Pool of Bethesda was not only real, but also right where it's supposed to be, just like the Bible states. Let's see to Moses. Skeptics claim that the mentioning of this type of seat mentioned in the Bible must be figurative because there's no evidence of its actual existence. However, thanks to the discovery of archaeologists, we now know that the seat of Moses was an actual seat that was made of stone where the teacher of a synagogue would have sat just like the Bible states. And then Caiaphas. He was not only the high priest for 18 years, but it was this same Caiaphas that Jesus was taken to after he was arrested and he asked Jesus, Are you the Christ or Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? To which Jesus replied, I am. Then he handed Jesus over to Pilate to be tried. Well, he's not only real, but his family tomb was recently discovered by accident by construction workers who were making a road just south of the old city of Jerusalem. Archaeologists were called to the scene and they found ossuaries, that's these limestone bone boxes, with the remains of Caiaphas' family, including himself. The most beautifully decorated one was inscribed with his name, and sure enough, inside were the remains of a 60-year-old man, almost certainly to be those of the same Caiaphas mentioned in the New Testament. As one man states, this remarkable discovery has, for the first time, provided us with the actual physical remains of an actual character mentioned in the Bible. Now contrast this with the Book of Mormon, who would have you and I believe that their so-called New New Testament of Jesus Christ is also reliable and accurate like our Bible. Really? I don't think so. And the reason why is because it doesn't hold up at all to archaeology. Let's take a look at what so-called archaeological evidence there is for the Book of Mormon, and you tell me if we should trust that thing. Let's take a look. Metallurgy. The Book of Mormon describes the various usages of iron, steel, brass, and various metals in the Americas before the birth of Jesus Christ. The problem is that archaeology has shown that metallurgy did not appear in the Americas until about the 9th century A.D. Weapons of war. 
The Book of Mormon describes the, the presence of chariots and, and other various weaponry that was supposed to have been used in the New World according to their dates. The problem is, archaeologists have found neither the evidence of chariots or other weapons mentioned in the Book of Mormon at this time. Then, different major ba- battles. The, the Hill Camorra in New York is described by the Book of Mormon to be the location of two major wars, they say, that involve the deaths of millions of people. However, no remains or even weapons of these wars have ever even been found there. Crops and agriculture. The Book of Mormon describes the various agriculture of the Americas as being similar to that found in biblical times in the Middle East. But the problem is, archaeology has shown that the Americas at that time didn't grow those kind of crops, and what crops they did grow are not even mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Then the use of linen and silk. The Book of Mormon describes the use of linen and silk in the New World at their time, but again, neither silk nor linen items have been discovered during this time frame. Animals. The Book of Mormon describes various animals like donkey, cattle, oxen, and even elephants as living in the Americas at their time frame. But the problem is, none of these animals ever existed in North America, Central America, or even South America during the time the Book of Mormon mentions. And then, of course, the DNA. The Book of Mormons actually say that the Mormons, uh, that the Native American population are descendants of their ancestors called the Lamanites, who originally from ancient Israel uh, came from around 2,600 years ago. The problem is, DNA samples have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Native American peoples are descendants from the Siberian and Asian ancestors, not made up Mormon tribes. Furthermore, there is also no archaeological evidence for the other mythical Mormon tribe called the Nephites, who were supposedly to be white and exceedingly fair people. I don't know about you, but it appears to me that somebody's making up a story. Unlike the Bible, how about you? And this is why this researcher has this to say about the importance of biblical archaeology. He says, We find that there is good evidence that from archaeology that the Scriptures speak the truth. In many instances, the Scriptures even reflect first-hand knowledge of the times and customs it describes. While many have doubted the accuracy of the Bible, time and continued research have consistently demonstrated that the Word of God is better informed than its critics. In fact, while thousands of finds from the ancient world support in broad outline and often in detail the biblical picture, not one incontrovertible find has ever contradicted the Bible. Why? Because it came from God and He doesn't lie, even when it comes to history. And this is why, again, you can't have it both ways. You can't agree with some of the Bible's teaching and then turn around and deny its authenticity. Why? Because the historical integrity of the Bible as verified by archaeology, proves it's the genuine Word of God. Anything short of this is called hypocrisy. And so it is with the skeptics of the Bible. They spout off bold claims that the Bible cannot be trusted. It's a book full of errors. It's whooped up by man. Yet it is they who refuse to look at the evidence. People, again, be encouraged today. You don't have to give in to the attacks of the skeptic. You don't have to give in to doubt. You don't have to give in to one iota of criticism. What we hold in our hands is the genuine Word of God. And that's why, more than ever, we have got to wake up and realize the golden opportunity that God has given to us. Our world is in a frantic search for purpose and direction and meaning to life. They realize the world is messed up and it's getting worse. And so they're full of questions like, why do I exist? Where did I come from? Where's all this evil coming from? Is there life after death? And and is there any hope? 
And it's high time that we, the church, get busy not just saying the Bible came from God, but showing the world that it came from God. And the way we do that is by putting our lives on the line for it, like these Christians did, risking death for God's Word. Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries, and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death? In other words, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not, how can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not something to just memorize or stick on your wall or give the appearance of being a religious person. The Ten Commandments were God's divine x-ray, if you will, into our heart and soul to reveal this truth that we need to admit. And that is this, that God is holy and that we are not. We are disqualified for heaven. So let's take a look at that divine x-ray that God's trying to get us to realize. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That's lying. Okay. How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another Ten Commandments says that you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one. And for being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something, right? That makes us a thief. Another Ten Commandments says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. He's not just holy. Even His name is holy. Hey, folks, let's be honest. If you can believe it, even the name of Jesus Christ... Uh, has been turned into a common cuss word. Well, the Bible says that's a sin of blasphemy. Now we're a, a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, here's his standard. Uh, uh, even if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you committed adultery in your heart. Wow, so now we're an adulterer. The Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, at least I haven't done that one. Really? 
Again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, okay, that, that's the same thing. Uh, it's akin to the sin of murder. It's just you pulled the trigger in your heart, but God sees the heart. Hey, folks, that's just five out of ten. How are you doing? You still think you're going to get to heaven on your own? You still think that you're qualified, that you're holy like God, and you could bridge the gap and have a relationship with Him forever? I don't think so. I mean, what did we just see? You're going to stand before God, and so am I. We all are. And we're going to have to give an account for who we are. Hey, hey, God, let me in. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a liar. I, I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. And the Scripture is very clear, folks. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're in trouble. But folks, here's the good news. The Bible says that if we would just admit that, that's the first step. To admit that God is holy, that I'm not, I'm disqualified for heaven, I need a Savior. If we would admit that and then ask for the Savior to save us. That, that's what God was doing with Jesus. God gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done and be made holy through Jesus so that we can now have a relationship with God both here and now and forever in heaven. We can become qualified. The word that the Bible uses is a word called pardon, that God is willing to pardon us of all of our sins and crimes that we've committed against Him and disqualified us, that disqualified us for heaven, right? And we've actually seen this work in real life. Uh, for instance, uh, there's been people who have committed crimes, gone to court, the gavel's been passed, the judges said, hey, listen, we all know you're guilty, uh, you even admit you're guilty, and uh, for your crimes, you're going to not just jail, you're going to uh, await in jail to go to the death penalty. And did you know that there actually is a way that somebody could get off of death row? It's called a pardon. The one in the authority, the governor, can grant what's called a pardon for that person's crimes, and they literally can go free. Not because of something they did, because the deeds are already done, you can't undo it. Not because of they tried to clean up their act while they were stuck in the jail cell, because that doesn't change anything. But simply out of mercy, the person who has the authority can give them a pardon, and they can go free. And did you know it's actually on historical record that there have been people who have been granted a pardon from the death penalty, and they've refused to take it. And so even though the offer was there to be set free, they themselves still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what God's doing every single day with all of us this side of heaven. While you still have breath, you still have an opportunity to receive God's pardon. He's willing to forgive you of all your sins if you would just receive His pardon through Jesus Christ. Again, that's what He was doing on the cross. The cross was the death penalty of the day. But since we weren't there, and since we can't earn it, it's a gift from God, you have to receive that by faith. Reach out even today from your own spiritual jail cell, if you will, and say yes to Jesus and God's pardon so that you can be set free and go to heaven. The Bible says that if you will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Hey folks, if that's you, don't delay. You may not even have tomorrow. Today could be your last day. Please accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth He is the Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the grave and the Bible says you will be saved. 
Well, this has been Billy Crone of Gill Life Ministries. If there's anything that we could do for you, our information and, and number will come up here shortly. And please don't hesitate to contact us. But remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.